remember from just looking at the board something of the actual outline of this book. It's a very simple one. It follows the dating of the book in Haggai 1 1 and 2 verse 1 and 2 verse 10 and 2 verse 20. And you will see that the first division we have entitled the challenge of the law to rebuild the house of God. Haggai 1 from verse 1 to 15. And there are three subsections in that first division. The exposure of the real cause for the uh, stoppage in rebuilding, the appeal to consider their ways and rebuild the house, and finally, finally the response to the Lord's challenge, complete obedience. And in the second division, the encouragement of the Lord to continue in the work of rebuilding, chapter 2 from verse 1 to verse 10. Uh, there are two subsections there. First, the covenanted presence of the Lord, which is the key to encouragement and perseverance. And then the second subsection, the coming realization of God's purpose and glory, directly related to the rebuilding. Now, this evening we come to the third division in this little book, Haggai chapter 2 and verse 10, and we have entitled it The Appeal of the Lord for Further Reflection in the Work of Rebuilding. If you will keep now your Bibles open at Haggai chapter 2, um, we will look now at this section from verse 11. To verse, uh, from verse 10, I'm sorry, to verse 19. Now there are one or two comments we ought to make before we actually look at it a little more closely. The first is that this message was given two months later than the previous one. And it followed a message by Zechariah, a very short message that we have in the book of Zechariah, chapter 1, from verse 1 to verse 6. A very short message, a very pungent message. You can read it in a moment. Uh, in between the last message in Haggai 2, from verse 1 to verse 9, and this message that we are considering this evening, from verse 10 to verse 19, Zechariah has delivered the first of his recorded uh, messages. In fact, it is interesting to see a little an echo of Zechariah's message in this uh, succeeding one of Haggai's. You'll see it in chapter 2, verse 17. Yet you did not return unto me. If you read this small message of Zechariah, you will see that the word that he repeats again and again is returning unto the Lord. What the Lord did and how they didn't return, how the Lord appeals to them to return. And it's interesting that in the message that follows it of Haggai's, there is just a little echo of what Zechariah has said. And then again, we ought to note that this message is addressed to the priests. You will remember the first message was addressed to um, Zerubbabel, the governor, and uh, to Joshua the high priest. The second message was addressed to Zerubbabel, to Joshua, and to the remnant of the people. This third message, interestingly, 
clearly enough, uh, is addressed, at least it would seem, to the priests. You'll see that, verse 11, uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priest to decide this question. Then follows a question and answer of the priest, another question and answer of the priest, and then verse 14, Then Haggai said, So is it with this people. Verse 15, Pray now, consider what will come to pass. Of course it is to all the people, but... Um, Firstly, the message was addressed by the Lord to the priests, that is, those who should have been the most responsible for the things of God and for the house of God. Uh, then again, we ought to note, as we have in the other messages, what I believe is very, very interesting and helpful, the actual timing of the Lord's word. Um, you see, you will note in verse 10 that it was on the 24th day of the ninth month of the second year of Darius. That is roughly, we would say, the 24th of December. Uh, now, the interesting thing about this is that if you compare verse 10 with verse 18, consider from this this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider. By comparing these two verses, you, can, you come to this remarkable conclusion, this was the day that the actual building started. Uh, it's even more clear when you come, to, if you look back to verse 15, Consider from this day onward, before this stone was placed upon a stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? Now that is most interesting, uh, because it means that this actual message, this third message, was given on the day that the actual building commenced. We know from uh, the 15th verse of chapter 1, that the work on the Lord's house had begun three months earlier. But that work, as far as we can make out, was the work of clearing the site, clearing away the rubbish, uh, cutting down the undergrowth and overgrowth, going out into the hill country and getting the wood, bringing it in, getting it all ready and prepared, and uh, probably bringing in the stone and getting that sized up and cut and so on. Those three months were taken up with a lot of um, prep preparatory work uh, on the site of the temple. Now, three months later, on the 24th day of the ninth month, the actual work of building commences. And at the same time, the Lord comes with a message. Now, it is very interesting, if you remember, how first of all the Lord spoke, uh, and then three and a half weeks later, work began on the house of God. One month after work began, on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, when everyone was gathered to, to praise and thank the Lord for, for the harvest, which was non-existent, and therefore they were all having a very hard time to praise the Lord for something which wasn't really there. Um, Haggai, on that day, spoke to them a word of very real encouragement. That is the second message. Now, um, three months after the first message, uh, and, and two months 
after uh, the second, uh, he brings a word on the day on which the actual work of building commenced. Now that's very important if we're to understand this very difficult passage in a moment. Um, then another point I think we ought to make, and it's very interesting because it's, uh, it throws more light upon this uh, difficult message, I think this myself, I find this third message of Haggai the most difficult in the whole book. Um, another point that we ought to make is that the rains came usually um, toward the end of the ninth month, that is uh, December and onwards. And you know the whole economy of the land depended on two phases of rain. Um, in the year. And it was toward the end of the ninth month, this very month, the 24th day this was of the ninth month, it was just around this time normally that the rains began and um, then immediately the people began to prepare the ground to put the seed in uh, for the first um, phase of the year. Now this is very important because from chapter 1 and verse 11, we discover that the Lord has been withholding the rains. We don't know for how many years, but evidently the whole country had come to, the, to a standstill, the economy of the country had ground to a standstill through the lack of rain. In verse, chapter 1, verse 11, I have called for a drought upon the land and the hills, upon the grain, the new wine, the oil, upon what the ground brings forth, upon men and cattle, and upon all their labors. Now, many have suggested, and it may well be true, that the first sign of the Lord's promised blessing uh, was uh, the rain. It would have been very interesting. You see, in chapter 2, verse 19, last part, you had this, From this day will I bless you. So the many believe that probably upon that very day, later in the evening, the first rain fell for some years, as the first sun that the Lord, on the day that the actual building began, the Lord was saying, Now, I'm starting to bless. Of course, it was only the beginning, you see. As the, the prophet says, the seed is still in the barn, you see. It's not being sown yet. It's, they're, wait, they're waiting for the rain. Uh, it's very interesting. All the trees are, are to stand still as yet. But uh, it may well have been that on that very day, later, after these two messages, the clouds formed and the rain came. So, those are a few background points. Now, there are two divisions in this um, uh, uh, message of Haggai. The first we have called the nature of uncleanness illustrated or defined. Um, from verse 11 to verse 14. And then the second is the enforcement of the lesson the fullness of blessing can only be found in the house of God being built. Now the first of those sections, if you would like to take um, your Bibles, from verse 11 to verse 14. 
The nature of uncleanness illustrated or defined. Now, what was the problem? The problem evidently causing confusion amongst God's children was a very simple one. It was over the slowness in coming of the blessing. In spite of the fact that they had spent three months hard work on the temple, and it meant that most of the menfolk had had to go out, leaving their families, going out into the hill country to bring the wood in, cut it down and bring it in. Then they had to prepare it. They had to quarry the stone and bring it in, as well as all the sites being cleared and prepared and sized ready. The point was, in spite of three months' intensive work, there wasn't a sign of blessing. The drought seemed to remain. The barrenness was the same. Everything just continued as it was before. And furthermore, um, there were some, probably, the, the, the problem was a bigger one than just those three months. You see, for 16 years, they had been making offerings on the altar. So one of the first things they did in 536, when they returned from the exile to the promised land, was to set up the altar. And ever since that time, they had been keeping the uh, altar going. They'd been making offerings at the altar. And not only that, they'd been keeping the feasts. We know of certainty they kept the Passover. We know that they kept the Feast of Tabernacles. So their problem was, here we have been offering on the altar, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. We've been keeping the feasts all these 16 years. Oh, it's all right. We haven't built the house of God. But there have been other problems as well. There's been all this official opposition. There's been our confusion over the scriptures concerning the 70 years' captivity. And there have been a lot, a lot in the way of hardship and circumstances and so on. And uh, then, of course, the last three months, we've put everything aside and put first, thing, first things first and really given ourselves to this work of rebuilding the house of God, and still the blessing doesn't come. So now there was a certain amount of confusion amongst God's children. Now, this problem, sadly enough, is not one that is extinct today. It is the same kind of problem that often arises to many who at one time in their life have really not only seen what God's purpose is, but have committed themselves to it practically. I take it that most people, most people, I don't say all, but most people in this room have seen something of what God's purpose is and have committed themselves to it. That's why they're here at all. They see the need for God's house to be recovered and they see the need to be built up with other things into the Lord. Now the problem that you might often ask yourself is, why do we have such a hard time of it? Why does the blessing take so long in coming? Hasn't the Lord promised fullness of life and fullness of blessing? Hasn't the Lord said that his purpose is not that we should just suffer hardship all the time, that we should have no joy, that we should have no rest, 
that we should have no prosperity, that there should be no increase, isn't his purpose rather that though there be much antagonism and much opposition and much difficulty, yet there should be joy, joy unspeakable, filled with glory, there should be peace that passeth all understanding, there should be a rest in the Lord, which is, as it were, a basic core to our hearts, there should be an increase in spite of the enemy. You see? And so the question naturally arises, why? Perhaps we say something like this, you know, I, 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 I really saw what the Lord wanted, I committed myself to what it was, it's led me into a somewhat difficult way, I've come into an experience of the cross, I won't say I, I know the cross in, every, in, in a very full way, but I have known a little of the cross, in a corporate as well as a personal way, and, uh, and uh, so on and so forth. Why doesn't the blessing come? Why is it that we look at some of those people who seem to have happily remained um, out almost of the uh, fear of God's purpose? If you know what I mean, they're saved, but they, they, have no, they don't bother their heads about the purpose of God. And, so, and yet they seem to have the blessing, and they seem to get away with an awful lot, and it all seems to be very happy and full. Why does the blessing take such a long time? What, what's wrong? Is it worth it? Is it really, basically, worth it? So this problem is, I'm afraid, sadly enough, as I've said, not extinct. It is a problem that confronts many of us in this room tonight. Now the Lord answers, and he commands the people, in the light of Deuteronomy 17, verses 8 to 11, to ask the priests to decide this question concerning the ritual law. Uh, I won't read you Deuteronomy 17, verse 8 to 11, but there you will find a very interesting little passage which says, if there is any problem or any difficulty, go to the priests and ask them to decide, to deliberate and to decide on the question or to define the principle which is involved. If you've got a, a little bit of trouble about this or about that, well, go along to the priest, tell them about it, they'll go look up the law and, and pray about it and reflect on it, and then they'll tell you what is the actual principle involved. Now, says the Lord, I'm telling you, you ask the priest to decide this question. Now, he has it taken um, one of the points of the ritual law, it's very simple. When a priest carrying in his skirt some of the, of the uh, sacrificial meat, should his skirt touch any food, does it become holy, since the flesh is sanctified already? Okay. No, say the priest. All right then. If a man's touched a dead body, a corpse, and he touches something which is holy, does it become unclean? Yes, say the priest, it becomes unclean. Hold in, it's, it's not two ways to think. It's one way. Now, this is just what the Lord's getting at. What is the nature of uncleanness? What is the nature of unclean? It is this. Holiness is not contagious. But uncleanness is. That's all. It's as simple as that. 
Helena, unfortunately, is not infectious. But uncleanness is. And you can illustrate this from ordinary life. If I, got, if I catch polio, I can infect you, though you'll be healthy. I can actually infect you. But if I am a very healthy person, I cannot immunize you against polio. My polio, my disease, can infect you, but my healthiness can't immunize you. And the Lord is getting right down to something which, in a way, uh, is most remarkable once it's understood. It's not an easy passage to understand, but once it's understood, it suddenly bursts on you like a, almost like a bomb uh, going up. You see, the blessing of God has been slow in coming because it has been hindered by uncleanness in the people. That's all. This uncleanness has infected everything, says the Lord. And although they are doing some right things, although there are some holy things amongst them, they are, are unable to infect everything. The uncleanness is the infectious thing. Now you thought, say, now what on earth is all this what exactly does this mean? What does it mean? Of course, we can illustrate from all the way through Scripture. You, you take Achan, one man, he hid in his tent Babylonish garments and some silver and gold, and the whole camp of Israel suffered defeat because of one man. His uncleanness could not counter the holiness of the rest of the people. One man's uncleanness infected the whole camp and brought defeat. But that is not actually what the prophet is getting at. This is the point. The temple ruins are unclean. And they are infecting every single aspect of the nation's life. And cutting them off from the fullness of blessing which should be there. You see, they're returning to the land, they're setting up the altar, they're keeping of the feast, do not and cannot compensate for their leaving of the house of God in ruin. That's the point the Lord is making. The ruined state of his house is uncleanness in his sight. And the fact that the people of God have been prepared to leave it in its ruined state and do nothing about it whilst busying themselves with the altar and the feasts and the, and the tilling of the land has in fact brought about an infection of everything. So says the Lord, you see. So, in verse 14, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, says the Lord, so with every work of their hands, every work of their hands, it doesn't matter if a man's a carpenter, it doesn't matter if he's a tiller of the soil, it doesn't matter if he's a keeper of cattle or uh, a shepherd, every single work of his hands is unclean before me. Why is it unclean? Because of the ruined temple of Jerusalem. 
Because of their, the uncleanness of the temple, everything is infected. Now, it may be that you still don't fully see this. Now, I grant you it's not an easy passage. But it is instructive to note the force of the word there in verse 14. Now, let me read it again with an emphasis on that word. Then Haggai said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, says the Lord. And so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. The force of the there, of course, is that whilst the people had been making much of the altar, which they'd set up on the foundation of the, uh, of the temple, Whilst they'd been making much of the altar, they had been leaving the house waste. And the fullness of God's life and blessing is bound up with the house. And that's the point. No amount of offering on the altar can compensate for not building the house of God. Because the altar, whilst it is vitally and fundamentally necessary, is still a means to an end. My dear brothers and sisters, the cross is a means to an end. It is a, it's an almost impossible thing to bear the cross unless you see it as a means to an end. It becomes the most melancholy, the most soul-destroying, the most miserable thing of all. If it's not seen as a means to an end, the altar and the labor stood as the introduction to the tent of meeting. They stood in the outer court as the way into the actual house. They were the means by which God brought the people in, dealing with what they their sin dealing with their self at the altar, bringing in what is of himself, born of God, renewed by God, and then being brought into the tent of meeting. So, I wish we could all see this point, you see, because from all this, there's so much we can learn. You see, the cross brings us into life. There is no such thing as spiritual life without the cross. The only way you and I were born of God was by coming to Calvary. There is no bypassing of the cross. In, in the most initial and fundamental way, there can be no forgiveness of sin without the cross. There can be no justification without the cross. There can no, be no, no blotting out of sin without the cross. There can be no reconciling to God without the cross. The cross is fundamental. But my dear brothers and sisters, the cross is fundamental to life. Before you and I can become recipients of eternal life, it has to be through the cross. And you know the only way that you and I can be kept alive unto God is by the cross. The moment you and I forsake the cross, forsake on the one side the atoning work of Christ on the cross, and on the other side the 
the representative work of Christ on the cross. That is not only his dying for me, but his dying as me. The moment I forsake that twofold work of Christ on the cross, spiritual life starts to die in me. It becomes static. Then I, I have a tough job in keeping going. Then it is true the Christian life really does become questionable as to its work. You may have a heritage. You may have an eternal salvation which is still more valuable than anything else. But as far as your life down here it goes, unless by the cross you are kept alive unto God, kept, can I put it this way, you are being saved all the time. Well, you see, you, you, uh, you will revert, as it were, to an experience of spiritual death. You sow to the flesh, you reap of the flesh corruption, even if you're a Christian. It, it, it's an unchangeable, unalterable law. So you see, you and I have got to come back to Calvary, not once in a blue moon, but daily. You and I have got to come back to the cross to see there that I've been forgiven by the blood, in the, by, the, by the shedding of the blood of Christ. I've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. I've been justified through the death of Christ. I've been reconciled through his laying down of his life. I am being made alive continually by the fact that he died as me. I was crucified with Christ. The cross, the altar, is vital and fundamental to the Christian life, to any life with God. But having said all that, it, it is only a means to an end. It is in the body of Christ that I discover the fullness of God. You see, you've only got to look at a few scriptures. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Verse 20, verse 23, the, the last part of verse 22, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Chapter 3, verse 19, to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye may be filled unto all the fullness of God. But look at verse 18, with all the saints. So there's no just personal experience of the fullness of God. It's got to be with all that you may apprehend, with all the saints. That doesn't just mean in a kind of uh, anonymous multitude. It means by being built together with others into Christ, you come to be filled with all the fullness of God. All right then, look at chapter 4, verse uh, 12 for the perfecting of the saints, unto the work of ministering, unto the building up of the body of Christ, till we all attain unto the unity of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a full-grown man, all of us, a full-grown man, one full-grown man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Where do you and I discover the fullness of Christ? The fullness of God, in the body of Christ. Now that's really what this message of Haggai is 
seeking to set forth. The cross is the means by which we are brought into the church and by which we are enabled to be built up with others into Christ. Unless you and I are prepared to relinquish something, we cannot know in experience and in practical outworking the fullness of God. Now we see really, to sum up this section, the um, nature of uncleanness defined or illustrated, the ruined temple and their attitude over it is uncleanness in the sight of the Lord, which has not only hindered the blessing from coming, but it has brought much hardship to them of an absolutely unnecessary nature. Now this is the message of Haggai. These people were saying, oh dear, we've returned to the land. What a terrible time we're having. Famines, drought, mildew, hail, and wine, no wine to drink. There's no grain to make food with. There's no oil for light. The cattle are in a poor condition. The sheep are in a poor condition. Everything's bad. We're having a terrible time. And you know, the things, of course, we all came here out of faithfulness to the Lord. And Haggai has come to them and just said simply this, Look here, you are denying the very principle of your return. You did not return just to dwell in this land. You did not return merely to set up an altar. You did not return merely to keep feasts. You returned in order that you might be within the purpose of God to rebuild the house of God. In, light, in the light of the coming of the Messiah. So God says, there is an unnecessary hardship. Now, you know, this is a message to you and me. I hear people talking about the hardship of the way they live. It's all God's fault. But you know, it's not. A lot of it is your fault. You and I are alone responsible for absolutely unnecessary hardship that you and I are wallowing in tonight. We are there simply because we've refused to put first things first. And the situation can be changed literally within a night by a deliberate, willful action on your part and my part to put First things first. And when that happens, the fullness of blessings, says Haggai, will be yours. So he has illustrated and defined for us the nature of uncleanness. The temple is a ruin. You, you, certainly the altar's not ruined. Let us make clear about that. There was no altar, by the way, amongst the people in exile. Here the word, the altar was not ruined. No, no, the altar had been very carefully set up. The feasts, were reinstituted and kept. There was much else that was right and good, but it was unable to compensate for the ruined nature of the house of God over which they were doing nothing originally. So that's the first part 
of that third message. Now, the second part is the enforcement of this lesson. It's a very, very forceful one, too. The fullness of blessing can only be found in the house of God being built. Now, if you will turn and look again at these verses from 15 to 19, Haggai appealed to the people for further reflection in the light of this lesson. He has now defined for them uh, the nature of uncleanness, and he has pointed out that the, it is this, the ruined house of God, which is the uncleanness in the midst of the nation, their attitude to it. Now Haggai uh, wants them to reflect further. His key word here is consider. Consider. And um, if you look at verse uh, 15, it's very interesting to see two things. First, verse 15, consider. Let's just lift out three or four words. Consider from this day before. Got it clear? Consider from this day before. In other words, before this day. And then in verse 18, consider from this day, since, that is onwards. So he is asking for them to consider from this 24th day of the ninth month, upon which something was happening, he says, now look back and consider. And now look on and consider. Concerning the translation of um, verse 18, this is just a technical point, but I think we ought to just make it. Um, in the American Revised Standard Version, it says, Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Professor Ellison says, The Hebrew is far less concrete than the English translation would suggest. And he says it could be translated since the day that the temple was begun. And I think that in the light of um, chapter 1 and verse 15, and also the reference in Ezra, and above all, verse 15, before a stone was placed upon a stone, it seems to me that it is clear that this reference was not to the actual foundation, but to the work that was begun on the foundation. That, I think, has got to be clearly made. It is probably true to say that the actual foundation of the house was never destroyed, since some of the stones were as big as this room. They were there, but the house of the Lord was burnt down by Nebuchadnezzar, and it is probable, though much rubbish and undergrowth and so on grew on it, the actual foundation remained. Uh, in 536, they cleared the foundation, and um, uh, there was a kind of inaugural service to commence the work again. Then it all stopped after a while. And then again in 520, uh, the first of uh, um, uh, Haggai's messages resulted in a further clearing of the actual foundation site and preparation of the material. But this actual reference now is to the beginning of the, of the work of building. In other words, stone being built upon stone on the foundation. If that's understood, it will throw a flood of light uh, upon what uh, the Lord is trying to say. Now, it was upon this very day 
when the actual building started, the placing of stone upon stone that the Lord gave this word. Uh, and really, he is seeking to say that the placing of stone upon stone was to be the focal point of their reflection. Consider from this day, before a stone was placed upon a stone, consider how you fared. Didn't this happen? Didn't that happen? Didn't the other happen? Then a bit later on it says, consider from this day onward, since the foundation of the Lord's house, or the temple of the Lord was begun, consider, from this day on, will I bless you. The focal point of it all was placing stone upon stone. The actual work of building up. Now that's very important. Before the actual building began, what was the experience of the people? Well, if you look in verse 16 and 17, you'll see it quite clearly. It was an experience of blight, of mildew, of hail, of impoverishment, of weariness, and so on, and so forth. Yet, says the Lord, they did not, you did not return unto me. Though I did all this to you, to wake you up to the foolishness of your way, you would not turn. Now, the interesting thing is this. God does not let the blessing come even during the three months of intensive work on uh, the temple site. As if he wants to enforce the lesson. Now that's why I call this the enforcement of the lesson. Of the lesson. I mean, after all, let's not split hairs. Why doesn't the Lord, after all he knows they're having a tough time, why doesn't the Lord um, bless them from the moment that they started? Why couldn't the Lord, in when they when they when they were obedient to the Lord's challenge, why couldn't he have started blessing them there? Why did he wait three months? Without as much as a tremor of blessing. Without as much as a drop of rain. Without as much as a small sign of his favour. He holds back and lets the men all go out to the hill country to bring the wood. Others start to quarry the stone and prepare it and clear it. And he doesn't do a thing as if he's totally uninterested. The point is this. The Lord is enforcing a very important lesson. He waited until the first stone was placed on another stone before he began to bless them. I'm very glad he did, because you and I have the most marvelous safety mechanism for evading issues. The point is you can't escape from it in the book of Haggai. Nothing could be clearer than this. The practical experience and enjoyment of the fullness of God's life and blessing is wholly dependent upon the actual building together of living stones into God's habitation. So, you see, we've got to see that 
this experience of the fullness of God, you may have a personal fullness, but the actual fullness of God, that experience is restricted to what we can call body experience. Actual experience of being built together, fitly framed and knit together in Him. In that way, you and I come into an experience of the fullness of Christ. It's not dependent upon the altar alone, nor the foundation alone, nor returning and dwelling in the land alone. Obviously, it's important that the people went back and dwelt in the land. How on earth could they sell the house if they didn't do that? Obviously, that's essential. Obviously, it's essential to build the altar. The altar was the first thing that absolutely necessary. First go back to the place God has chosen, Jerusalem. Get into the land. Get to the place God has chosen, Jerusalem. Then set up the altar. Those two are vital necessities. But they alone don't bring us into the fullness. If you and I stop there, our experience will be miserable. We can have an experience of the cross, and in the end it leads nowhere. We have a personal experience, but we have not an experience of the fullness of God in Christ. We haven't got that experience of that river that begins to trickle out of the house of God and becomes an Amazon-like deluge. You see, it's not just... The point is, the altar is is a necessity and so is the foundation. The foundation is necessary, but you know a foundation is a means to an end. You don't just lay foundations just for the joy of laying foundations. They aren't anything in themselves. A foundation is to carry something. Now then, you see, the land is Christ, isn't it? We know that. And the salvation of Christ, we know that. The enjoyment of the life of Christ, if you like. We know the author speaks to us of the work of the cross, of Calvary. The foundation speaks to us of Christ himself, laid as the foundation, which no man can lay, but which is laid. It's there. But the foundation is something that's got to carry a structure, and the structure is the house. All these things are important, but it is building which is the key to the fullness of God's blessing and life. You see, the very, remini- the very meaning of their return uh, was not mere knowledge of God's purpose, nor that they might just dwell in the land, or that they might keep the feast. It was that they might rebuild the house. And this is the thing that the Lord has waited for in order to enforce this lesson. Those ruins are uncleanness, and their attitude to them is uncleanness. It involves the whole people in uncleanness and stop the blessing, the fullness of blessing and life, of God's life, coming to them. Now, says the Lord, I waited. You started three months ago on this work. And I waited. I've ignored everything. Not because I wasn't interested. I was very interested. But because I want to enforce and emphasize the lesson. The moment the first stones went together, I'm here to tell you, from this day will I bless you. And I wouldn't be the least bit surprised, it's not recorded for us, if that very evening the first rains for some years deluged the land. 
And no one was back. Because first things were first. And it wasn't talk. And it wasn't knowledge. And it wasn't profession. But it was practice. The building had actually started. Now that's what the Lord wants from you and me. He doesn't want all this talk. All this discussion. All this profession. All this knowledge which just inflates us, which puffs us up and does nothing else. God wants the practice. He wants to actually see building taking place. And he waits until that happens. And in the meantime, it just seems as if he's ignoring everything and holding back from everything. The fullness of his life and of his blessing is held back. Well, I think that's very important. We should understand that. You see, it, doesn't, it didn't matter what they did. Whilst they left the house of God in ruins, it was uncleanness in the sight of God. And it's the same with you and I. We may have personal experience. We may have uh, a real knowledge of the cross. We may have a knowledge of God's purpose. We may be to a measure committed and yet. Until you and I finally relinquish and allow God to get on with the work of building, there is uncleanness which hinders the fullness of God's life and blessing coming to us. It's as simple as that. Now the people have actually started the work. And so Haggai's message here is really, in many ways, although it's to do with uncleanness, is in fact an encouragement. It's not that the uncleanness now any more longer exists. It's gone. That's the whole point. That's the glory of this message. He's from this day on, I will bless you. The point is you've been worried. You've been confused. Now the Lord interprets and explains. The actual work of building has commenced. And now, says the Lord, they will enter into blessing. It would be slow to begin with. But if they continue in the work, the fullness of God would break upon them like a deluge. Later on, Malachi brings this out again. But you see, here is the interesting point. It's a small beginning. You see, the first thing would have been rain. The second thing would have been sowing of the seed. But everything would have been a slow beginning up to the first harvest. And then gradually, the whole economy of the country would begin to feel the uplift of these first rains. You see? It wasn't going to be just all marvels to begin with. They've got to continue in the work. But if they continue, the deluge of God's fullness would break upon them in the village. Poured out upon them. Well, I wonder whether you and I have learnt a lesson of this particular message. You see, it's not enough to know. It's not enough to have personal experience, important as, important as it is. It's not enough to have a knowledge of the cross, fundamental as that is. We must be actually built together. And that is not easy and easy or quick or superficial matter. I have become more and more convinced of it, that in the end it is the acid test of true spirituality. People can profess a lot, they can talk a lot, they can appear a lot. But until
until finally they're able to be fitly framed and knit together. It's so a lot of it. It's something that's just themselves sharp. True spirituality can bear the acid test of discipline of the house of God. It can submit, it can be subject, it can adjust, and yet retain an originality right through. Well, that's the third message you've um, Haggai. Now what about the last uh, message of Haggai? Contained in verses 20 to 23 of this same chapter. Um, I have entitled it, The Promise of the Lord to Zerubbabel, the Builder of the House. Now this is a rather wonderful message, I think. Um, there are one or two things we might just say before we actually look at the verses. Um, the first is this. It was given on the same day as the preceding one. But it was given to Zerubbabel alone. Uh, Zerubbabel here is singled out for a special word from the Lord. And there is a reason for this. And you know, sometimes we get such a false picture of the Lord. And perhaps in just understanding this reason, it may make us realize just how wonderful and intimately careful of us the Lord is. You see, Joshua the high priest had nothing to lose by the house of God being built. In fact, he had everything to gain. His whole position, his family, his service, uh, needed as its kind of sphere, if you like, the house of God. But not so Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, you see, jeopardized everything by being committed to this work of rebuilding. In the eyes of the Persian government, he as governor was watched carefully for the slightest trace of treachery or rebellion or underhandedness. And there were spies, only too ready to tell on any person in position that, they, that, that that person in position might be deposed and someone more favorable to them put in. And so Zerubbabel knew with so many enemies in the land, you've only got to read the book of uh, Nehemiah, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, to see how many enemies there were in an army lookout to try and destroy and frustrate this work of God. You can realize how much it cost the rubber ball to um, be committed outwardly as governor of this Persian province of Judah to be committed to this work of rebuilding God's house even though there was a decree, uh, a royal, Persian royal decree behind him, it yet cost him a lot. It jeopardized his position, his uh, career, and his family standing in the sight of the government. Now, isn't that wonderful? It, it seems as if the Lord especially made this promise to uh, it's a wonderful promise. I will make the assignment ring. As, as if the Lord was saying, Zerubbabel, you faced the cost involved in the building of my house. And as far as you were concerned, it could have meant everything for you. Now, Zerubbabel, I want to promise you 
that because of what you've done, I will honour you. It's the old word in the book of Proverbs, them that honour me, I will honour. I think we should also note one other interesting thing. The promise made to Zerubbabel in verse 23, I will make you like a signet ring, goes back as an obvious reference to what the Lord said to Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jeconiah. And you'll find it in Jeremiah 22, uh, verse 24. It's rather interesting, this. As I live, says the Lord, though Jeconiah, or Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, with a signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee thence, and I will give thee into the hand of them that seek thy life. Now that was the grand, that was the Rubbable's grandfather. And the Lord says, though you are like a signet, I take you off. Now he says to Sir Rubbable later, I will make thee as a signet ring. And then I think we also should say this, this message is also messianic, speaking of Zerubbabel's descendant, Christ. Because you see, Zerubbabel was of the royal house and line of David. And if you read in the um, genealogy of Christ, you will discover there is the name of Zerubbabel. His direct line uh, was, to, uh, was to descend to Christ. And so this prophecy uh, is in fact messianic. It is like great David's greater son, so it's like great Zerubbabel's greater son. It looks forward to the coming of one beyond Zerubbabel, who was of the line of Zerubbabel. Because in fact Zerubbabel was never actually given back his throne. Um, it's interesting in the light of this to note the ministry of Zechariah from chapter 1, verse 7, to chapter 6, verse 15, I think I'm right, um, where um, again and again, Zechariah speaks of Christ's coming. And one of the loveliest parts of all is where he speaks of the branch who will build this house. In other words, it's a direct messianic reference to Christ as the builder of the house of God, the founder and builder and completer of the church of God. Well, even though this prophecy, this message, is um, messianic, nevertheless, it's not wrong to see here uh, a promise to all who build up the church of God. Um, I wonder whether we could have that um, study door open just a little, please. Um, I've been very interested to note how these three or four verses lie behind quite a bit of the book of Revelation. And although time has gone, I would just like to read you these verses. I, you're all acquainted with these four verses, I hope. If you are, you'll pick out similarity here. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 26, listen to this. He that overcometh and he that keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to shivers, as I also have received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. Then in chapter 3, 
His hands have laid the foundation of the house of God. His hands shall complete it. Before him, this mountain shall become a plain. Oh, yes. There's nothing more wonderfully fulfilled in Scripture as, uh, than this prophecy in the person of Christ, the builder of church. He's on the throne of God, a man in the glory, as the chosen one of God. And he's been made the signet of God in everything. There is not a thing that does not bear upon it the stamp of God. It's done through Christ. Christ is God's signet. Christ is God's seal upon everything. Nothing is passed. Nothing is enacted. Nothing is done without the seal of God upon it. I, I, I must say, I, my mind wanders now, but I must stop it. But I cannot help even seeing, in a, perhaps a fanciful way, that Christ is the Word of God. Somehow this signet, this, this idea of Christ as the signet ring of God is bound up to me with the fact that He is the Word of God. God has spoken to us, and Christ is God's signature, God's seal, God's stamp of authority upon this final revelation of himself in fullness. Well, I could give you a lot of scriptures for that. I'm just going to run through them. You can put them down. There's 1 Peter 2, verse 4, elect as the chosen one. Ephesians 1, 20 to 22, where it says that Christ has sat down on the right hand of God far above all principality and power, everything subject under him. Then Philippians 2, verse 9 to 11, Wherefore God has highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, and at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and so on. And then Matthew 28, 18, All authority is in heaven and on earth is given into my hands. And then lastly, Revelation 7, and verse 17, In the midst of the throne, the Lamb, as it had been slain. No, Christ is the fulfillment of this marvelous prophecy. He is the great builder of the church, and he has reached the throne of God. He is the chosen one. He's on the throne of God, as God's signet, made God's signet ring in all things. God's authority in everything. But you know, having said that, this message has also much for us. We've already seen in Haggai chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, that out of the great shaking of the nations that would come at the end, God's purpose will emerge fulfilled. Now we are shown something even more amazing, that in all that shaking and loss at the end, those who've had part in the building of God's house will not merely be secure, they will not just be secure, but they will reach the throne of God himself. Now you might be afraid of what is coming on this earth, and you who have children, you need to be afraid. You need to bring up your children carefully, remembering that in those last days, parents will be torn away from children, husbands from wives, friends from friends. Those days into which sooner or later we shall move are going to be terrible days. But listen to this. If you've had part in the building of God's house, if you've had part in the building up of God's church, no matter what happens, you will not only be secure, you'll be secure, right? Or you might lose your body. 
You might lose your goods, you may lose your family, but you'll be secure, and they will be secure as well. Eternally secure. But you will not only be secure, marvellous it may be, you will actually reach the throne of God. For that is the very nature of overcoming. To me that is something very marvellous. And there is also here a most marvellous promise to build us up of Christ's body. He, in verse 23, I will make thee as a signet. Now the signet ring was worn by what, what was um, of peculiar preciousness to Jews of standing. It wasn't because the poor people didn't wear them. But any Jew of nobility or of standing, uh, his signet ring was the most precious thing in his possession. And he wore it on his right hand. And it was, it, as it were, that ring represented the wearer's authority and word and standing. He used it for signing letters, for sealing documents, and for much else that was not only in the legal business, but much else in the normal everyday business of life. But whenever that had that particular seal upon it, stamped, you see, a signet ring was something which meant that was stamped <coughs> wax or something else. Um, whenever that bore that sign, it meant that the standing and authority and word of the wearer was vouchsafed. Uh, now, there is no more remarkable promise than this in the whole of the Old Testament. For God to say to you and me that he will make us as a signet ring to himself is surely the most remarkable promise. To say that we shall be, as it were, representing his standing as the almighty God. To, to say that we shall represent his authority, that we shall represent his mind, his word, is tremendous. I say this is absolutely wonderful. To say that you and I shall have such a relationship to him of peculiar preciousness, as that bound up in the mind of the people of Haggai's day with the signet ring is surely the most remarkable word from God. You see, it had cost the robber much to commit himself wholeheartedly to this rebuilding in days of opposition, weakness, and insecurity. It had meant suffering. It had meant hardship. It had cost him in time, in reputation, and in much else. But now, God speaks to Zerubbabel. He staked everything when he could have lost everything on God. Now the Lord comes back to Zerubbabel and says, Zerubbabel, I will make thee in the day when I destroy all false authority, in the day when I overthrow market, the throne of the kingdoms, the strength of the kingdoms, the chariots and the riders, everything that represents false authority and power. The day when I destroy it all, 
Then, Zerubbabel, I will, I will bring thee to the place of true authority. I will enthrone thee. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit down with me in my throne as I have sat down in my father's throne. So there is a day coming when if you and I will only commit ourselves now wholeheartedly, staking everything upon God, with the possibility of losing everything we stake. If you and I will only, as it were, commit ourselves wholeheartedly to this work of rebuilding, God comes back with a promise, you will not suffer in the end. In the day when I shake the kingdoms, in the day when everything is shattered, in the day when false authority is, is forever and finally broken, then you will be brought into my throne. You will be made like a signet ring. So shall it be with all those who truly overcome in that great battle which rages over the purpose of God concerning his church. But if that is the most marvellous promise in this little book and one of the most marvellous promises in the whole of the Old Testament. I think the final word of this short message must be the greatest word of comfort that could ever have been given. Listen. For, for, I have chosen He doesn't just say, I have chosen thee. He says, for I, I will make thee in that day as a signet ring. For I have chosen thee, says the Lord of hosts. I know that our minds can't completely understand the sovereignty of God. But of this I am convinced, that somewhere right back in times eternal, God chose us. I know there are people who try to water it down, who try to uh, adjust it to other things, but listen, Christ is the chosen one of God. Peter says, coming unto him as a living stone, elect, precious, ye also as living stone. And he goes on to say that we are an elect race. Same word. As God has chosen Christ, so he's chosen you and me. I have no doubt about it. I don't understand it. I cannot completely tie it up with free will and human responsibility, but this I am certain of, that somehow you and I can fall back in the end upon the sovereign choice of a sovereign God. It is 